Hi, this is Corey Olson, the Tolkien Professor, and welcome to another episode of the Silmarillion Seminar. Hello, and welcome to episode 30 of the Silmarillion Seminar. I'm Laura Burkholtz, and I'm not only one of the Silmarillionaires, I actually coined the term. I'm also responsible for editing and producing the podcast, so if you notice something wrong, just let Dave Kale know. In this episode, we start off by discussing a couple of well-known characters, Voldemort and Mr. T. You'll have to listen to find out how they fit into our discussion of the Silmarillion and the War of Wrath. To give you a hint, it's from the immortal Mr. T that the title of this episode comes. We also ask the burning question, where the heck were the elves in the War of Wrath? We debate whether the Valar came to the war, ponder what it looked like when Arendelle fought and Caligon, get exasperated again by that darn oath, and wonder about burning Silmarils. And now, I pity the fool. Okay, good evening everyone and welcome back again to the Silmarillion Seminar. Tonight we are actually going to finish the Quintus Silmarillion after threatening to finish the Quintus Silmarillion last week and then once more my unruly students having their way and uh, and are having one more week on uh, on the Quinta. We now finally uh, return in tonight. By golly, we're going to finish it. So um, we are beginning, we spent uh, last week on almost entirely talking about Arendelle, which is fine. That is perfectly worth it. And today we're going to be looking at the large and indeed cataclysmic events which lead up to the very end of the First Age. Um, lots of stuff on the Silmarils today and lots of stuff on Morgoth and the Valar. So, let us, uh, let us talk about... Let us talk about these things. Let us figure out uh, what exactly is going on here in the War of Wrath, because I actually think there tends to be some confusion about that. Um, but, uh, so, let's see. Uh, several of you wanted to talk about wanted to talk about the Valar and the role that they play in, uh, in coming over. We spoke about the kind of discussion that people had, uh, that is especially Olmo and Mandos, uh, talking about the fate of Arendelle. But then after that, uh, they uh, finally decide to come over, to come over and kick some butt. Um, uh, Laura, I think you wanted to talk about the the the, the passage, which is uh, which is right up your alley. That is uh, the the business about the the acts of pity. I think you had commented on that. That's right about where we are. The attack of the Valar. Okay, there was a there was a passage I wanted to read, so why don't I get that? Um, I'll just look it up here quick. Yeah, and it is interesting, just because I, you know, I I am of course calling on Laura because this was the topic of the paper that she wrote for MythCon uh, about pity and especially pity in connection with the Valar and Morgoth. Uh, the focus of her paper was on the pity that Nienna seems to show to Morgoth when, well, Melkor, as he is still called at that time, when Melkor um, comes and, and uh, begs for pardon after his three ages of exile um, and is then let loose, and Nienna aids his plea. And uh, so Laura was talking about the way in which the mercy that uh, that Manway shows to to Melkor sort of works out there and why it makes sense for Nienna to be apparently showing pity to Melkor, who certainly doesn't seem to deserve it. Um, but uh, this, this, I would say, is sort of the, 
the bookend scene to that. This is this is sort of at the end of that story where we see uh, Pity coming back around with Melkor here. Do you have it though, Laura? I do, and actually, I want to expand my paper to include this. <laughs> yes, uh, definitely. The scene in it, because I just think it's so great. Um, okay. Yet it is said that Morgoth looked not for the assault that came upon him from the west, for so great was his pride become that he deemed that none would ever again come with open war against him. Moreover, he thought that he had forever estranged the Noldor from the lords of the west, and that content in their blissful realm the Valar would heed no more his kingdom in the world without. For to him that is pitiless, the deeds of pity are ever strange and beyond reckoning. To him who is pitiless, the deeds of pity are forever strained, strange and beyond reckoning. Um, yeah, he doesn't. He doesn't understand. He thinks. He thinks that they. He. He thought he had forever yeah, estranged he, the Noldor from the West. They don't make the sense to him. Yeah. Um, because and, uh, it, you know, it, it, it doesn't make sense in, uh, in, in the world. You know, it's not really a logical action to, uh, to have pity on somebody. And so I think that's why he doesn't understand it. And I also think that deeds like this that are that are just about pity and not really um, about, you know, the, the logical outcome in this world anyway, are maybe um, a bit of a wild card in the music of the Einar. That's just something I was thinking about the other day, that maybe they're the, the thing that can, can sort of change fate in a way, you know, something that's that's not logical, that just comes out of this sense of pity for someone else. Yes, yes. And I think it's, it's you know, this this passage, I mean, I've been saying it's like a bookend pa- passage. It's, it's, it's explicitly connected, I think, to the earlier passage. Um, because, remember, we were told about Manway earlier on. Um, it seemed to Manway that the evil of Melkor was cured. This is the bottom of page 65 uh, in my edition. For Manway was free from evil and could not comprehend it. And he knew that in the beginning, in the thought of Iluvatar, Melkor had been even as he. And he saw not to the depths of Melkor's heart, and did not perceive that all love had departed from, from him forever. So Manway does not comprehend Melkor's thought. And and does not give him credit for the fact that all love has gone from his heart. And now Morgoth, we see, is not understanding the Valar, and not giving them credit for the fact that love hasn't disappeared from their hearts. So we see both times this sort of central figure misunderstanding the other, uh, and uh, and now that, that, that inability to comprehend is really coming back on Morgoth. Dave, go ahead. All right. You're going to end up regretting letting you turn the mic on for me this time, <laughs> let me guarantee you. Uh, I'm going to read a quote also, just, just for fun. Okay. Uh, that, that always, I, I'm, afraid, I, I'm sad to admit, or maybe happy to admit, that I always think of this quote every time I hear, um, uh, or I always think of this quote I'm about to read every time I read this passage of the Silmarillion now. Um, and here it goes. That which Voldemort does not value, he takes no trouble to comprehend. Of house elves and children's tales, of love, loyalty, and innocence, Voldemort knows and understands nothing, nothing. That they have all a power beyond his own, a power beyond the reach of any magic, is a truth that he has never grasped. 
I just wanted to toss that in there. I, I connect that quote very strongly with this passage in the Silmarillion now. I'm, I'm, I, I don't know whether I should be ashamed of that or not, but I love the <laughs> fact that, um, I love the fact that, that, that at least in this one case, these books really seem to dovetail. That uh, evil people, um, uh, evil people, you know, like that, that indeed their inability to understand things like compassion or love or, or pity uh, can actually be a weakness. Yes, no, it's true. And certainly that is one of the themes that J.K. Rowling really harps on in the Harry Potter series is both the the importance of love and Voldemort's limitation. This is, of course, one of uh, Dumbledore's continually recurring um, uh, ideas, you know, when he's talking to Harry about Voldemort, that that his lack of lack of respect, his lack of comprehension about love and how important it is, um, is is a major weakness of his. I don't think... Well, there certainly is that similarity between the two of them. I think that the issue in this passage with Morgoth, uh, and pity especially, is somewhat different. Certainly in the passage that you mentioned, although, you know, Dave, I certainly agree, there is, there is, there is that basic similarity. I think that... Um, there's something Tolkien is thinking more about the nature of pity, I think, of pity and of mercy, um, in this passage than I think just, I think that Rowling was sort of not being that specific or thinking that specifically about that in um in in that passage. No, there, I but. think she was thinking specific I think she was thinking more about the nature of evil, right? Like the in the nature of evil people. Whereas Tolkien's really zeroed in on specifically the act of pity, like, like that there's there's some you know like there's all kinds of things that Voldemort doesn't value and doesn't understand. And in fact, that's exactly what that that quote says that right. anything he doesn't value, he doesn't understand. And that even included, for example, powerful magical objects, the Deathly Hallows, whatever. Uh, so, but in this case, it's there's something very tricky and bizarre about the nature of pity itself that, that Morgoth doesn't comprehend. And, and maybe there are other things that Morgoth wouldn't value that he might understand. Maybe he's a smarter and more comprehending guy than Voldemort as a villain. But pity, there's something really special and bizarre about it that really baffles him, which I think is totally reasonable because it baffles us too, right? right. This is why... Laura even bothered to write a paper about um, <laughs> about Nienna's pity because most of us read that and say, "What is wrong with you?" <laughs> right, right. Don't 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 side with Morgoth. Let him go to prison. <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, exactly. And I I do think that that's um, it's one of the things that makes this second um, that makes this second scene, this second moment, uh, so powerful, I think, is that certainly if we remember back even to the reaction that we might have had, exactly as you're saying, Dave, to that first scene, um, now we can see, okay, if we were sitting there saying to Nienna, don't do it, Nienna, don't do it, he's just bad, don't have pity on him, then we're actually like Morgoth, and we're not understanding the works of pity either. Um, And we think that... You know, and basically love is departing from our hearts in the same way um, that and I think that that's actually really interesting um, that we can see in Nienna uh, in particular and uh, in the Valar as a whole a pity. Laura, as you were suggesting, a pity which transcends what might seem to be, you know, rational justification. Um, and it certainly is 
viewed by uh by by Morgoth as irrational here um and i think that that is uh that that does really point to it's not that this explains or even really illustrates uh pity but but points to it um and helps us to see its importance and its significance um mike you've been uh you've been you've been very patient here go ahead and what I thought of when I read this passage was uh, Lord of the Rings, Gandalf mulling aloud about Sauron's weaknesses and stating that it's beyond his imagining that we would ever uh, turn down the ring and try to destroy the ring. Yes. So sort of the same, similar vein in this passage in terms of what uh, Morgoth is incapable of imagining. Yes, exactly. How Sauron judges all minds by his own standard, right? By, you know, by the desire for power. That's what he knows, and that's how he, and that's what he assumes about everybody else. That's how, although, you know, as Gandalf is quick to emphasize, both at the Council and the Council of Elrond, uh, and at the last, uh, the last Council of the, the Captains there, after the Battle of Pelennor Field, um, both times Gandalf is, emphasizes the wisdom of Sauron. It's not that he's an idiot. It's not that he's a fool. It's not that they can just you know easily deceive him. But he, wise fool, as Gandalf calls him, is going to de- is going to end up deceiving himself because of the assumptions he makes. Because ultimately, and this is where you get back. This is where you get back to Tolkien considering the nature of evil. Um, you know, Dave, as you were as you were pointing, and as I, I agree with you, I think that J.K. Rowling is 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 too. I think a lot of her depiction of Voldemort is actually um, very reminiscent of 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 some of Tolkien's treatment of evil here. This is just a part of the way in which evil in Tolkien is always self-destructive, um, because if you if you genuinely are, if if evil people are focused inward, are self-focused, if they are their own, if they if if they are their own, the, truly their own number one priority and number one focus, then by necessity they become their own standard. They become the 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 standard by which they judge all things. That's merely a logical extension of that same thing. If you put yourself at the center of your universe, then you are going to be the 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 mark by which you you judge all other things and therefore you're going to blind yourself to other things remember the valar back at the beginning the reason the number one reason they decided to descend into arda and bind themselves to arda and restri- restrict themselves within arda was out of love for the children and they loved the children because they were other than themselves because they perceived in the children something which was like them but which was other than them not just not just creatures, not just not just stuff that they made, like Aule and the dwarves, right? He didn't want robots. He didn't want automata who would just do his will. He wanted learners whom he could teach. He wanted other creatures who would reflect Iluvatar in new and different ways, from whom they could learn uh, about Iluvatar and you know discover things that they didn't know before because they're other than they are. But those who are evil, those who are focused inwards, shut themselves off from that, shut themselves off from that other, um, and cease to value it and cease, therefore, even to be able to understand it. So that's um, that, I think, is... is what we can finally see working out here in Morgoth, um, this this way in which his own his own evil has really undermined him. Laura, go ahead. You know, the other thing I wanted to say about pity is that um, it, it, 
another theme that Tolkien really loves is that it's the humble that end up saving the world. You know, it's it's this man who who sails a ship to Valinor who ends up saving the lives of of the elf lords. Um, you know, it's it's the Hobbit that ends up. Uh, that ends up uh, saving the world in in the Lord of the Rings, and not just not just Frodo, but also Gollum, even who's pretty much as as low as you can get. Yeah. So this <laughs> this idea of pity, um, this idea of pity uh, from uh, you know one creature to another without condescension, really, is is another thing that that fits with that idea of of the humble being raised up and and doing great things. Um, yeah, that basically you can see that's exactly the logical extension of this entire thing. This is why this is why pride goes along with uh, with evil in this way. Not just because, as Jordan, um, you know, has argued that you know pri- pride is this is you know is this really crucial thing that we see uh, in all of the good. In, in all of the good people that be, that become corrupt, pride is sort of the way in there. Um, yet, nevertheless. Um, we can see that all evil people are proud. I mean, and they that they they look down on others, and they don't give. They don't. They don't think of it. It, it would never occur to them um, to, uh, to 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 value them. I mean, you think about the contrast between Gandalf's relationship with uh, the hobbits. You think about how Gandalf's attitude towards the hobbits and Saruman's attitude towards the hobbits and Sauron's attitude towards the hobbits. Um, and I think all three of those things really, really illustrate it pretty clearly. Um, Laura, go ahead. I just wanted to clarify another thing, too, because I think we use the, the term pity a little differently than Tolkien does. A lot of times when we're talking about pity, we're talking about um, looking down on somebody with pity. Mm-hmm. You know, like I pity the fool. You know. Yes. But, yes. Uh, <laughs> to use the iconic, classical use of that term in modern day society. Exactly, um, and Tolkien is using it differently. He's using it um, in a, it more the sense of compassion. Yes. You know, and compassion with action, not just feeling sorry for or feeling bad um, about some other person. Yeah, it's a little different than I think some people think of that word. Well, right, exactly. I mean, you think of how you think of how the word pitiful has evolved uh, in our society. I mean, that's now simply an insult. You know, you're pitiful. Well, that was a good thing I mean, to be full of pity. And notice how it's all, it's also even shifted around. Um, you know, a, an object could have been called pitiful, which was the object of pity, but. Uh, but that's that's a good thing. At least it said it's it, it's meant. It was originally meant to have said a good thing about the other person, um, not simply to be an insult. Um, so no, I, I I mean I agree. I think that that's an important thing to. Um, I think that's an important thing to to uh, to remember. And and another thing I would point out. And I, you know, Laura, I think you used this word too in its old sense. Um, Another word which used to be a good word, but which has completely lost all good associations, is condescending. Um, now to be condescending is merely an insult, um, which I believe to be chiefly an American thing that is in origin. Because as as our you know, uh, the idea one of the 
you know, one of the fundamental ideals of American society is that everybody is equals. We don't have a class structure, everybody knows. Fortunately, we have no class structure in America. There are no aristocrats in America. Um, good thing. And um, so therefore, no one person is actually above another. But if you live in a society where people actually believe that some people are genuinely above others, being condescending is a really good thing. It means being humble. It means not holding yourself uh, to your rightful position. You know, Laura, as you said, Austin, Jane Austen uses it in a complimentary way all the time. When you have somebody who is in a high position in society, who takes the time to actually treat peasants and, you know, like their tenants and things like that, um, with respect and with kindness, they're being condescending, uh, in that, in that positive way. Um, certainly when the Valar act towards the elves or when Gandalf acts towards hobbits, Gandalf is, is very condescending to the hobbits in a good way. He comes down, uh, does not sort of remain up in his lofty position. Saruman, of course, is the opposite of this. Um, and he, 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 he remains up, you know, we get sort of the, the, the visible symbol of, of Saruman remaining high up in his tower and refusing to come down, uh, and treat with everybody else at their level. He tries to maintain himself, um, he tries to maintain himself up. Uh, but anyway, so I think that that's, uh, um, that's certainly a way in which we can see these words changing. And I think that that is very important to remember. And I absolutely love the Mr. T reference. And Laura, I think you should try to work that into your paper, too. You know, how Niana is different from Mr. T, one of the several ways in which Niana is different from Mr. T. I think that's an excellent thesis, actually. Um Good, good. What now? But now on to uh, on to the actual on to the actual war. Let's get to the fighting. Um, so we have we have the War of Wrath. Several of you had some some thoughts about the about the, some thoughts or questions about the contenders, Nick. Yeah, um, I just felt it was really strange how the elves of Middle Earth and Beleriand did not take part in it. Um, or, or did it yeah. seems as though they they weren't even aware what was happening. You know? <laughs> yeah. and it, it seems kind of strange. It, trumpets filled the sky, and you know, Balerion was ablaze with the glory of their arms, and the mountains rang beneath their feet. It's like, how do you not become aware of that? And with all they've been through in the first stage, you, you would think that they would jump at the chance to kick some butt at that point. You know, with the gods at their at the, on their side. I just felt it kind of odd. Yeah, it, it's I I agree with you, and it's especially interesting because we're told that the remnant of the three houses, the remnants of the Edain, do fight with the Valar. So it's like, where was where was Gilgoad? What was he up to? You know, how about Kierd and the shipwright? Where, where was Goadriel? They were just like on the Isle of Balar, being like, well, this doesn't uh, affect us. I agree, that does seem strange. I mean, one thing that we're told, I mean, we certainly know that you know the refugees whose camp was savaged by the sons of Feanor uh, and almost almost entirely destroyed uh, in the beginning of the chapter. We know that there aren't very many of them left. Um, but I agree, it does seem, it does seem a little bit odd. Um, and certainly, certainly one effect of it is that 
we get abs- you know, almost no details at all about the War of Wrath. The only one detail that we get is the business about sort of the final aerial combat um, is the only thing specifically, other than also, you know, some details about the fall of Morgoth. But, um, but yeah, the fact that they're not really involved, I agree, is kind of fascinating. But I think there's, there's a, there is a kind of fitness to it as well, that this is not just the Valar coming in as really effective reinforcements to the Noldor. The Noldor and their war with Morgoth has failed, was hopeless. It's not like, and they can only win if the Valar come in on their side. In the end, they don't win. It's not about them. And they stay out of it. And I think that there's, as I said, I, I do think that there, although it does seem strange, I certainly agree with that, I think there is a fitness to it. That they... It's not. It's not. It's not their fight. And in the end, they are merely saved. They are merely rescued. You know, the Noldor are not the desperate heroes whose you know who have been fighting in the front of the battle and who are you know who are saved by the reinforcements sweeping up. They're like they're the damsel in distress at the end. Um, they're the ones who are just sort of swept off their feet and rescued. And I think that that is an important thing, um, an important thing for the Noldor in general, um, because remember, this is, this is, they were rebels, and what they rebelled in order to do was to go and fight Morgoth. And so, you know, in the end, they are not, their rebellious cause, we're leaving Valinor in order to go and fight with Morgoth, is not being rewarded, and it's not being assisted. It's being... I don't know, circumvented isn't the right word. Um, superseded? That's the right word. That's the word I mean. Um, it's being superseded. Now, that, that, that rebellion didn't work and isn't being supported, but they're going to get rescued anyway. They're going to get saved anyway, and they're going to be pardoned. Um, so I, that, anyway, that certainly doesn't serve as an explanation for why you know, Gilgalad and 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 you know Elrond uh, and Mithros are are sitting around not doing anything, um, but it does, I think, at least um, help to understand sort of what effect it has. I don't know, Jack. Yeah, speaking of participants, it's not exactly clear to me that uh, the Valar are there either. I mean, it speaks of the host of the Valar. And we see uh, the one Harold. Uh, yeah, yeah. Um, it seems to me like it's just a big army of Vanyar um, um, and some Noldar that the Valar sent over. Uh, is that is am I correct in thinking that? Well, I think the Valar are actually there, but you're right that. Um, this is the army of the Vanyar, and Finarfin is there. Um, but it is interesting that we don't hear more about the Valar. I mean, you think about how, uh, you know, we're told specifically, for instance, about how how, how Tolkas, uh, you know, came and threw Morgoth on his face, you know, challenged him to single combat and threw him on his face the first time um, when they came and took him down. And we don't get that kind of detail. We don't see... You know, Orame riding Nahar into battle. We don't see, uh, you know, Tolkas again, you know, laughing and wrestling with people. I think we are supposed to understand that they're there. 
And the primary reason I say that is because of the destruction of Beleriand. Um, remember when they were originally th- delayed, when the first time, uh, before they before they captured Morgoth for the first time, they delayed... That was before the elves had woken up, and you may remember that one of the reasons that they gave for not attacking Morgoth right away after the destruction of the lamps was that they didn't know where or when the children were going to awake, and they knew it could be any time now, and so they didn't want to go and attack Morgoth because they were afraid that the conflict between them and him was going to be so great that it was going to screw up entire continents and destroy things. And... um. So, you know, then they found the elves and they knew where they were and they were apparently sufficiently geographically removed from where Morgoth was that they felt they could do that safely, so they went. Um, So the fact that the continent does, in fact, get messed up again here does suggest to me that we do have the titanic struggle uh, of the Valar against against Morgoth and his forces here, and, uh, you know, Valar against Valar and and Maiar against Maiar. But... But Jack, I still think that you're right, and that that it is interesting that we get so comparatively little of that. Um, and even you know, one could even ask, I think, the question: Why do they bring the elves? You know, wh- why do the Vanyar come? Surely the Valar don't need them. Um, well, that was my my other question was: um, I don't see the at the the Vanyar as the Valar's standing army to be commanded. Right. Um, I, my my thinking is they're over there. They're, it's their free will to do what they want, to come or go, like all the elves. And if the Vanyar are part of this army, um, it was either their idea or it was the Valar's idea, or they're all agreed to do this together. Yes. Yes. Um, or maybe they just want to be part of it. I don't know. Yeah. No. I. I. I mean, I do think that it. It does seem to be. I think that we can conclude that it's their idea, um, you know, that they have, that they are wanting to come. And again, I don't, I, 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 I don't see any reason to believe, based on what we've seen before, I don't see necessarily any reason to believe that, like, the Valar need them in order to win. As you say, it's not like they are, they've recruited them as their standing army, and now the Valar are invincible because they have this huge elven army at their disposal. Uh, they did. F- they did fine the first time, um, defeating Morgoth. I mean, um, but now the situation is different, and I think it is for, I don't know, for their benefit because of their choice. Um, yeah, yeah. I don't think it's. I don't think it's out of military necessity. Certainly, Chris. What are you thinking? Well, as um, I've been listening to Jack's question, or comments, I had a thinking back to uh, earlier when we've uh, wondering the manner in which the Valar take action. Um, maybe there's action taking place that the elves who are chronicling this aren't aware of. One thing comes to mind is holding Valerian together to keep it from sinking before everything is done. That's kind of being facetious there a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> They don't have to be acting overtly. It does seem to... Valerian does seem to stay above water long enough for everybody to evacuate. That's kind of convenient. So maybe Valar are acting there. Yeah. Um, And and I guess... Go ahead. Go ahead. 
I was just going to say, uh, um, I guess I'm saying that only partially facetiously because last time when they battled, they destroyed, you know, it was huge wreckage on the world. Um, so maybe they did take actions to minimize that while their primary army, being the, the Maya, really, um, did, did the more, you know, face to face fighting. Just a thought. Yeah, it's possible. I mean, again, and this is one of the things that's so fascinating about the fact that we get so little, um, so little information uh, about the war itself. We don't know how active a role did the Valor. You know, was there another, uh, you know, wrestling match? Was Orame out there slaying Balrogs? It seems entirely possible, even probable. Um, but we're just not told. You know, what what were the Valar doing? Why weren't they doing other things? Um, and, you know, those are questions that we're, we're just, you know, it's not possible to answer definitively. Um, but I certainly agree. Uh, well, even the details about Beleriand and when exa- we're told that it is drowned, that it does sink beneath the sea. I mean, the continent is shattered. At what point is the continent shattered? As you say, certainly it seems like, uh, you know, we're not led to believe that um, we're not led to believe that that whole armies of the Vanyar were drowned, uh, you know, as the sea comes rushing in. Um, so obviously, you know, there was some, uh, there was some issue there, but, but again, we don't really know. And, 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 and that's not being given a narrative blow by blow of that scene. We don't really have any way of figuring that out. Dave? Well, the fact that we have no way of knowing won't stop me from speculating. Um, so I want to point out first, uh, so um, at the end, skipping ahead a little bit, um, Medros and Maglor are told, okay, um, I can't give you the jewels. Um, uh, by Yamwe says, you know, like, I can't make the decision about whether you get the Somerils back. You have to go back to Valinor to abide the judgment of Manwe. Uh, and also, we see in the uh, um, in the the chapter on the Third Age, same thing with Sauron. You know, Sauron's like, "Oh, I'm really sorry," and Yamwe says the same thing. He says, um, "Well, it's not up to me. You have to go back to Valinor to abide the judgment of Manwe." Yeah. And that's why you know, and and, in, and indeed, in both these cases, the people actively decide not to go back to Valinor because they're worried that they won't be given pardon. Seems a little perplexing. If Manwe was standing there next to Aonwe um, in Middle-earth, why would they go back to Valinor to abide his judgment? So I always read this as um, that basically Aonwe was basically the only Valar that went. Um, and then the rest of the army, uh, the rest of the host of the Valar was um, elves, the Vanyar and the Teleri, and then you know the Noldor that stayed and um, maybe Maiar and sort of the lesser spiritual beings, but that actually the, you know, the, big, the big names stayed back in, in Valinor. Um, and my sort of reasoning and thinking for this is that basically they didn't need to go. Um, they don't need, you know, this isn't a Valar fighting Valar battle. This is a, um, this is a battle that's largely fought by, fought by their, you know, for lack of a better term, minions. I know the Vanyar are not the minions of the Valar, but this is a war that's largely fought between sort of or, you know, the, the army of Morgoth versus the host of the West, which is the elves. And this is the case of the elves coming to save their brethren, led by maybe Aonwe and then some of the Maiar and whatnot. Um, and that 
the Valar didn't need to go, because Morgoth is so weak at this point. He has dispersed so much of his power into his, into his um, servants that, you know, you don't need Manwe and Tolkas and those guys there to take him down. Um, all, you gotta, all they have to do, I mean, once they defeat his armies, he's done. I mean, he has no chance. He's holed up in the, the hole because he knows he can't go toe-to-toe with any of these people anymore. So, um, so you know, the battle's really between the armies. And it seems, it kind of seems far-fetched to me that if Manwe, if all of, you know, if all the Valar were there, the superpowers were there, I don't think they would be driven back by dragons. So I always interpreted this as to be, this was almost entirely elves, with some Maiar and some, um, and Yanwe there, you know, fighting the Balrogs and whatnot. But even, you know, even Balrogs, the elves are on the same playing field as those guys. I mean, we see elves fighting Balrogs and even defeating Balrogs. And so, really, the only person, maybe Sauron, no, he gets defeated by elves too. So really, the only guy that's, you know, has shown himself to be uh, that the elves are no match for is Morgoth, and Aonwe is more than a match for him. So I just always read this as Aonwe was the only Valar that actually went, that Manwe wasn't actually there because he didn't need to be there. Um, and it certainly, to me, makes no sense that they would have to go back to Valinor to get his judgment if he was standing right there. Like, why wouldn't you just pass judgment there? That that That's possible. My To, to which my only response is then... How does how does Beleriand end up shattered? Is 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 my I question. have no good answer for that except yeah. maybe the dragons. <laughs> They're just really that good. Uh, and and so okay, so we have no idea how many Maiar there are there. Um, True. Uh, so you know, like I you know I don't know, or maybe you know the elves are pretty powerful too. So I just it seems there there's a few perplexing and contradictory things, and maybe this is one of those circumstances where if we actually went to the the histories of Middle Earth, we would see that that there are multiple versions of this, and sometimes they're there and sometimes they're not. And Tolkien hadn't really made up his mind, maybe, but um, yeah, it doesn't seem cut and dry to me. But to me, on the whole, it makes more sense if they're not there. Yeah. Just my opinion. Yeah. Yeah. I think uh, to agree with Dave here, which I know so many are shocked that I'm about to do, um, <laughs> if Manwe is there for the entire fight, then why at the end do the Eagles come with Eärendil? Why would they not have been there all along with their lord? Why would they be hanging out with an elf? And to couple that as well, why would Eärendil be able to turn the tide if the Valar couldn't? Uh, if the Valar are almost defeated by the Flying Dragons, how could Eärendil have possibly been more powerful than them, even with a Silmaril and a flying ship? So, there's that. But but he's a flying ship. I mean, seriously. <laughs> Let Laura go ahead. Yes, but aren't the Valar like infinitely powerful, larger than mountains and smaller than the point of a pen? No, no, no. Not they don't infinite, need flying ships. Not They're like powerful. infinitely powerful. <laughs> okay, uh, uh, trying to get a word in edgewise. Okay. Um, you know, the, the thing that uh, sort of seals it up for me is the uh, second sentence in that first paragraph. Wait, wait, wait. Um, Are you talking about the, the text? Uh, yes, I'm going to bring it back <laughs> to the text. Can you believe it? <laughs> anyway, that, that second line in that paragraph after the break, 
it talks about of the march of the hosts of the Valar. It says, but at last the might of Valinor came up out of the west, and the challenge of the trumpets of Aeonwe filled the sky, and Beleriion was ablaze with the glory of their arms. For the hosts of the Valar were arrayed in forms young and fair and terrible, and the mountains rang beneath their feet. I mean, if that's not the Valar, then what is that? You know, I mean, the might of Valinor, which would not really be the elves, um, and also the fact that the way it says they're arrayed in forms young and fair and terrible. The elves can't array themselves in these forms. That's already their form. It's only the Valar who can array, their, array themselves in different forms. So to me, that really is the deal. It's yeah. It, I don't think so. Recall that they refer to Morgoth's army as the host of Morgoth. That doesn't mean there's a bunch of Morgoths marching. It means well, it's no, no, the no. people that represent him, no, right? The host of the Valar. Like, there's there's no definitive evidence that they're there. There's none. Um, they. We, so the we when we see armies of elves. When, when we see armies of elves marching through Beleriand, we hear descriptions about you know like. Uh, the mountains ringing and things like that. Like, I don't think any of those things no, no, is no, definitive no, 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 evidence. No, 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 it certainly no, 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 doesn't no. explain no, why they no, would go back on, to Valinor for Manway's judgment, right? No, 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 wait, no, that's crazy. We have heard, you know, like mountains ringing in with the echoes of trumpets and things like that, but we've never had, like, entire mountain ranges ringing with the with the feet of the elves of the, as they have marched through. I mean, it's Laura is clearly right that what is being described there is something certainly of a higher, is, is certainly of a higher order than elves. Um, we're arrayed in forms, young and fair and terrible, and the mountains rang beneath their feet is plainly uh, a reference to spiritual beings who are taking on powerful physical forms in order to march into battle. Now, if you want to argue, oh, those are all Maiar, maybe you can make that argument, but that that obviously can't be the elves. And Laura is clearly right. You can't, because the, the elves are not going to be arraying themselves in physical forms. Um, they can, no, 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 no. I, put on armor, I agree. But... I'm just saying it's Maiar. There's like countless Maiar whose names we don't know. I, I just like. Do you guys think it's plausible that? Th Why would they even bother taking the elves? They kicked Morgoth's butt in his I, armies I last agree. time with no elves. Like, why would they bother taking elves? I agree. I agree. Um, uh, Mike, you wanted in on this, or did you want, or did you have a more polite discussion to have on something else? And we're going to wait until the until the fracas has died down here, or what? Is this a private fight, or can anybody join <laughs> no, in? No, please. <laughs> well, since, go this, for it, Mike. since this will be for posterity, <laughs> I want to go on the record siding with Laura. That is all. Okay, okay. Yay! <laughs> yeah, I mean, I... I the, now, I mean, I will also give... Uh, I mean, Dave, the, 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 the point that I want to give you credit for there is the Judgment of Manway um, thing... But, you know, I don't think that that's definitive evidence that the Valar are not there because the, there is this, you know, they have this, like, they're not just going to deal out judgment here, like, in, in a camp. 
on Middle Earth, they're going to go back and have a proper trial in Valmar. They're going to they're going to sit around in the circle of doom and they're going to give their judgments. That's how it's done properly. That's where Morgoth had his trial. That's where Feanor had his trial for drawing his sword on his brother. That's how things are done properly. So like you're, we're not just going to be like handing out you know. Uh, have having a having so, a so, kangaroo okay. court, uh, you know, over here in Middle Earth. So even if Manway were there, they would fair, still fair go enough, back but, and do it. But fair enough. But so why is it Aomway who? Why is he calling the shots? Why is he the one that decides, um, for example, that the sons of Feanor should not be slain? This is his job. He's the hero. How comes there's no, well, Yanwe is like, well, I better go talk to Manwe about this, because ultimately the Doom, you know, he's the one that makes these decisions. But Aonwe keeps saying, all right, well, I don't have the authority to make any of these decisions, so we're going to have to take it back to Valinor. Not, Aonwe checked with Manwe, and Manwe said, (laughs) well, guys, this is not, you know, this isn't the time or place, so let's take it back. It's, you know, like, there's no mention of anybody but Aonwe, which seems kind of bizarre. Yeah, I mean, on the one hand, Aonwe, I think, is, uh, I mean, he's he's more important. Um, I mean, um, he's not totally random. Just to remind, to remind everyone who may perhaps not remember this one paragraph from the passage we discussed seven months ago um, that describes Aonwe in the Of the Maiar section of the Valaquenta. Um, Aonwe, the banner-bearer and herald of Manwe, whose might in arms is surpassed by none in Arda. So he is not only the herald of Manway, that is, you know, and we see him acting as herald when he calls out to Eärendil. You know, he's the one who stands on the, on the, you know, on, on the hill and makes the speech to call Eärendil back. There he's acting as herald. He also acts as banner-bearer of Manway. And his might in arms is surpassed by none in Arda. So he is also the military captain. This is actually the guy you would kind of expect to be in charge uh, uh, and and to be to be calling the shots, uh, you know, to be to be the captain of the host here. Um, And uh, on matters of justice. Well, no, that's why he's deferring. That's why he's deferred. Don't don't slay to yeah, but if why couldn't he have simply deferred to Manway who was standing right next to him? Well, see, we don't know that he that he is standing right next to him because remember this is also after the battle. I mean, who knows? See, here immediately because we have so little here, one one immediately gets into uh, into you know writing a story, right? I mean, of course, I'm I'm tempted to say something like, well, maybe you know, like Manway and the other Valar went back to Valinor already, and uh, but still, the elves <laughs> who couldn't who couldn't just like transport themselves say. are I mean, still waiting for the boat. And Aonway is, a, uh, yeah, but I that's mean, not in the text. <laughs> exactly, not in the text. <laughs> it's not in the text, and that's why I'm not <laughs> saying it because we we don't. I mean, uh, but basically, the text the text doesn't have the answer to that question there. Can we? Can I just say, just just to, so that I don't drag this on? Can I just say that this is why we all love Tolkien? Because <laughs> if this were Harry Potter, somebody would just ask J.K. Rowling this question in a um, uh, in an interview or a press conference, and then she would say, "Oh, of course that they were they were there the whole time." You know, wasn't that obvious? And then the answer it would be answered. Yeah. This is why we love Tolkien, because <laughs> this question will never be answered ever. 
and we'll be able to argue about it 2000 years from now. Yes, yes. And that's why and that's why authors who have been dead for 500 years are even better. Uh, yes, I'm telling we love you. Dead authors. Oh man, the dead are the better. That's <laughs> okay. always been my slogan. the floor. I apologize. <laughs> that's okay. That's okay. Okay. Um where where are we? So I think we've settled that, right? I think we're good. Um no further questions or uh, uh I think we're yeah, okay. Good. Um and no, seriously though, does anyone have any more uh, points or that they want to make about the Valar? We haven't. Th- we we still need to talk about uh, about Morgoth's fall. But actually, before we do that, uh, John, if... I have a. Oh, so no, yeah, go ahead, Jordan. Uh, I have a question about the Vanyar in the battle itself, because they're not a part of the Doom of Mandos. Do they die when they go to fight, or? Are they still are they exempt from being slain? No, I think that the ability to be slain is already inherent. That 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 part, my favorite part of the Doom of Mandos, um, he's you know. Remember, he starts by saying, "Slain ye may be, and slain ye shall be." Slain ye may be is true of all the elves. All elves, it is possible to slay them. So there he's starting off not by delivering a curse, but by saying, um, known fact, it is possible for you to be killed. Now, fearless prediction, you are going to be killed. <laughs> um, and I'm going to tell you some about how that death is going to come and, and, and how that's going to happen. So yes, so the Vanyar are subject to to being killed in the same way. Um, they're just not doomed to it in the way that the Noldor were doomed by uh by but but that's but that's a really good question. Um Okay, uh others oh I, I was gonna ask uh John you had wanted to before we leave the battle behind entirely, John you had wanted to talk about the dragons or or, or, or something, so um go ahead. Well speculate we may and speculate we will. But um I believe in terms of the actual text itself we do have uh, conclusory evidence regarding this, our first introduction to winged dragons. Yes. And I, th- you know, I think we can always spend a lot of time discussing dragons, but as a, a clear sweep, this is a huge step from where we've gone with Glaurung. I mean, it's still basically a serpentine like something, I assume, but now we have freaking wings. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering, first, out of the plethora of ideas that are now floating through my head, and uh, me and Lady Orlase, who I know have been discussing this for a while, was the idea for the winged dragons derived from the eagles which have wings? Because earlier, I remember, I know we shouldn't go back to the Book of Lost Tales, or we're reluctant to do so, but the history of Middle-earth does beckon me once again. There is a reference to Morgoth actually experimenting with trying to figure out how he can work on an air force. I think he described even... Um, in the Book of Lost Tales, taking eagle wings and trying to come up with some flying contraption or something really silly. But, you know, what, you know, it was the earlier phases of the writing. Now, what's interesting is he has this entire air force, and he doesn't send them out right away. He has them on cue, and they're all waiting. I, I almost, once again, though, there is some imagination working. You know, one can almost imagine them waiting in some cages or something, ready to be unleashed, you know, getting them all revved up. Um, I wouldn't describe them as AK-47s. I hope they have more of a conscience than that. But, you know, that's the way the battle is unfolding. And as they're being finally released, 
um, we get the one mention to the one name in terms of dragons, which does come up in the Lord of the Rings and Caligon the Black. I was wondering what info you had about him, because he has a toe-to-do battle with um, Eorendil. And Eorendil is in a flying freaking boat, <laughs> for crying out loud. God knows how that battle would work out. There's been some talk about, you know, I think it's it's all dead now, or I, I hope it's not, of basically there being a Silmarillion, some adaptation. And I, I'm just even picturing how that battle could have worked out. You know, a dragon flying around, and we have um, some guy in a boat, you know, God knows with a sword. So that's... That's interesting. So I, I know I've opened a whole can of worms here. It's probably a huge debate in which there will be even more speculation, or maybe who knows, I might die here. But I was wondering what your little thesis is on this most interesting, I think, of passages. Because, you know, we get smog later on, but what other dragons do we get? N- not a lot. And here we have a brood of them. We have a whole lot of them. There were some at Gondolin. Did they have wings? I don't know. I don't think so. No. Here we have a first introduction and they appear in full force, and they kick ass. So this is what we got. You know, good, good. And I think that the, there is a lot there, and, and it is... Uh, the thing that we get with the flying dragons, this is definitely the first time we've seen them. We, we're told that this is the first time that they are that they are unleashed and they are a surprise. I, I agree with you. It is certainly true that this is that these are designed basically to be like uh, Morgoth counter Eagle measure. Um, and therefore, and of course you notice not only are they like the Eagles in that they fly, but they are also like Eagles in that they're almost an anti you catastrophe, right? I mean, Morgoth's Morgoth's battle is his, his hosts are losing and the orcs are withering like grass in flame and everything is going down. And then somebody's like, the dragons are coming, the dragons are coming, right? And it's going to be like the evil you catastrophe, except then, then, <laughs> then Arendel and the Eagles out, you catastrophe, the dragons. And there's this big, flying you catastrophe battle and the good guys win um so i mean that's 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 yeah i mean that's exactly not only therefore are they like the eagles narratively they almost function like the eagles it's fantastic mike go ahead we have a little uh style time moment after the dragons came come where we get the three three words but erendel came is that sort of what we've seen before where we've got the three were the, the compound noun verb where we say and she stank or we've seen this again and again several right. times is that the same thing going on with with that but this time it's, it's it's placed at the top of the paragraph instead of the end of the paragraph yeah it's well it doesn't have quite the same um it doesn't have quite the same force because it's not just like one of those either either tag either tagged on at the end as you say or even standing as a as a freestanding sentence it doesn't have the same uh kind of rhythmic um thing to it but 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 i agree um it it's it is kind of similar um actually i think even more similar to that is the previous 
uh, two paragraphs before, but it availed him not. Um, you know, because we've just had this long sentence from before. This is the second paragraph after that uh, break with the beginning of the War of Wrath. The meeting of the hosts of the West and of the North is named the Great Battle and the War of Wrath. There was marshaled the whole power of the throne of Morgoth, and it had become great beyond count, so that Anfaugleth could not contain it, and all the North was aflame with war but it availed him not. See, that's the place where we get that. Yet, yeah, Jordan, exactly, like, and Morgoth came, right? We get that at the beginning of the paragraph. But Arendil came. Um, and, uh, you know, Jordan, I think what you're sort of suggesting is that direct parallel there, right, between Arendil came and, and Morgoth came, um, which, yeah, I think that that does work. I think that we can see that in that kind of rhythm. And this is, but this is, you know, especially with the but, that's the turning point, right? The, 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 the but at the beginning of the paragraph signals that, and now we shift from a near anti eucatastrophe to the real eucatastrophe. Um, but uh, anyway, so that's, yeah, I, I think that that does, that does kind of work that way. But now to get back to the dragon stuff that John was talking about, and Caligon the Black, no, we don't know much about him at all. Um, and I have always found Encaligon the Black to be one of the most tantalizing figures in all of Tolkien. I was fascinated by Encaligon the Black when I read The Lord of the Rings when I was a kid, um, and I always wanted to find out more about him, and I remember when I first really found out what the Silmarillion was and was reading through it, one of the things that I was looking forward to was learning more about Encaligon the Black, and I didn't. <laughs> You know, and there's very little here. It's like, okay, so there's this one there's this one sentence about him being killed by Arendel, and that's cool, but I I what was he what was well, I just I, I wish we had more, especially since we get Glaurung. Um you know, with the two dragons that we get to know in Tolkien's fiction well, not not his whole fiction, I'm not thinking of Christophylax here, but his two Middle-earth dragons that we get to know, Glaurung at the beginning and Smaug at the end, um, you've got this central figure, and Caligon the Black, whom I believe we are supposed to understand uh, as being greater than any of them. He's greater than Glaurung, who was the father of dragons and the first of them, and he was very great, but Ancaligon is even greater, and Smaug <clears throat> is lesser, uh, even then in Caligon. And, you know, again, he gets what? One reference in the Fellowship of the Ring and one uh, and one sentence in the Silmarillion. Um, and no, no, we don't, we don't know too much. We don't know too much else about him. Um, and as for visualizing the scene, you know, I actually think this is a perfect example of why the Silmarillion would be almost impossible to do well on screen. I think there are some stories in particular. I would vote to say that I think that Baron and Luthien, and I think that Turin Turambar, both of them, especially Turin Turambar, could make a good film. But man, I'm trying to imagine like how this would happen. It doesn't so, bear thinking about. This is where this is where I can jump in. Okay, please do, Jordan. Uh, in Reign of Fire, a yes. 2002 classic yes, starring I saw Matthew it. McConaughey and Christian Bale, uh, near the end of it, Matthew McConaughey, uh, yes, Mike, a classic, uh, to distract the dragon, jumps off a ledge with a battle axe and the dragon eats him. <laughs> but 
in this instance, Arendelle would leap off his ship with a battle axe and uh, slay the dragon. And no, yes, I was being sarcastic. It's not a classic. The movie is terrible. <laughs> right now, I mean, you think about it, or, or, or is he going to ram it in the side like, like the end of Jaws 4, you know, to cite another classic film? I, I you know, I actually think if you were to depict... There are some moments, some other sort of individual moments from the Silmarillion that I think might look pretty cool on film. But, you know, I just think this is going to be hokey. I mean, if you really try to represent it. In fact, I would even point to this as an illustration of what Tolkien was talking about in On Fairy Stories when he was protesting that fairy stories shouldn't be depicted in visual modes. Um, now, he, of course, was talking about stage drama primarily and, and obviously not about film. Um, and some people have wondered, you know, basically with the advance in film technology, one of his objections to, you know, stage performances of fairy tales is that they're so clumsy. You know, like you've got somebody like shambling around in a bear suit being like, hi, I am the talking bear. And it's just it doesn't really work. Whereas if you can have, um, you know, with with you know, with CGI animals talking, now you can do it in ways which don't compel you to uh, strain your suspension of disbelief. However, his bigger objection to the visual representation of stories, or rather the problem that he poses with it, is the fact that it crystallizes it. That, you know, you can, you can say, you can make the bare sentence that he makes here in the Silmarillion, that you can say... Um, before the rising of the sun, Eärendil slew Ancalagon the Black, the mightiest of the dragon host, and cast him from the sky. But once you try to put that on film, once there is a particular way, Jordan, like exactly as you say, once you d you make a decision as a director, I'm gonna have Eärendil draw his sword and jump off the 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 bulwark of the ship and stab him in the head in midair, and it's gonna look kind of like the Beowulf cartoon, but not quite. I mean, if once you do, once you make that decision, then you have for the listeners, you know, for the audience of the story. Um, you have compelled them to picture it in a particular way which might not at all be congenial to them and they might be resistant to that and say that's dumb, that's that that that's a completely different story sort of than you know than the than I have of that and it doesn't really work very well whereas you can you can just say this you can just say Eärendil slew and Caligon the Black and then it is left to the in, the individual imagination of each reader, um, and and actually, I find when I read that that I don't picture it. I mean, when when you guys were asking the questions and you're talking about it in the in the class notes, I find that I I realized that I had never pictured it. Um, I had never even asked myself what weapon he used or how did he do it. Um, just that single image of uh, the the visual image that we get had actually, I think it just kind of overridden that in my own mind and cast him from the sky. He fell upon the towers of Thangorodrim and they were broken in his ruin. That's the image I have of the death of Ancalagon, not how Eärendil hit him and with what. But, uh, anyway, um, 
as uh, Dave is politely reminding me, we need to move on. But uh, but I, actually, I think we're fine. There are really only two more things that I really want to hit on, and then just a couple more very uh, very short loose odds and ends. Um, but the second, and we've already kind of worked up to this a little bit, is the defeat of Morgoth. Um, what do you make of the of the of the final overthrow of Morgoth? Did you find that? anticlimactic i mean we don't get and of course this again there's no what film director on planet earth would completely um lose the final confrontation climactic you know hand-to-hand combat with the evil guy and have the final battle end with the captain of the evil army cowering uh you know in uh in in his throne room and and hoping that they don't find him um it's fantastic yes it is ironic as prandon is pointing out here in the text um yeah what do you what do you make of that what do we take from from Morgoth's end here? I have I have a question about Morgoth's end that Dave brought up in the text and okay. thought was a stupid question, but I actually <laughs> think it's valid. It says that they hew off his feet. Now, first of all, does that mean they cut off both his feet? And second of all, Thingolfin hewed off one of his feet in their battle. So, how do, how many feet does Morgoth have? <laughs> Well, he hewed his feet, which doesn't necessarily mean he hewed it off. I think that Morgoth still has both of his feet after the fight with Fingolfin. It's just that one of them is wounded. He he went ever a halt on that foot afterwards. So so his foot his his foot is maimed uh, by Fingolfin, but he still has it. And I think also. Um, Let's see, uh, okay, but his feet were hewn from under him. Again, I don't think that he's necessarily actually dismembered, um, but he is, he is chopped down, uh, he is chopped down at the ankles. Um, but I think that that's, that's really interesting, because this suggests, uh, not to stir up, uh, the previous controversy, this is not Tolkas coming and wrestling him and throwing him on his face this time. This is him being cut down by warriors obviously much shorter than he is. Um, so I think that we see it, it probably are there, there, there are almost certainly elves involved in this. Um, like Fingolfin hewing his foot earlier on. Um, so yeah, so I don't think his feet are necessarily taken off, uh, but uh, but but yeah, he is he is cut down from below. Of course, also like Thingol, uh, ironically, but um, but yeah. So here he's he's taken. He is uh, he is at bay and yet unvaliant. And then of course my favorite point. And this is a point of course I made during my my Tolkien class that I recorded, um, which of course I've always loved, uh, since the, 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 the time I first noticed it, which is of course the delightful fact that his iron crown is beaten into a collar for his neck. And that goes back to what we talked about. I remember this was one of those points I stole from Dave months ago, um, was when we were talking about, uh, Angban being the hells of iron and uh, and being a prison house of slaves, and how Morgoth, of course, is the primary prisoner 
who is held within it, you know, that he has just made his own prison, trying to set himself up as king of all the world. He has ended up um, making himself a prisoner. And so we see that being played out again, symbolically, uh, and I think very clearly and very eloquently in his Iron Crown, which you will remember the first time we we got the Iron Crown described for us. He made the Iron Crown to hold the Silmarils. And so he's wearing this Iron Crown with the Silmarils on it, but the weight of the Iron Crown bore down his head way back at the beginning and so we see again this is not just this is not merely sort of smug irony on the part of the Valar there's not just the Valar taunting him and being like hey Mr. King of the World here's your crown now we'll make your crown into a into a chain uh, you know to show you how much not king you are that's it's, it's more than that his iron crown always was a collar for his neck um, now that's just been literalized Mike go ahead uh, when I read that the, you know, I read the Valar uh, approached the battle arrayed in forms young and fair and terrible, and the passage where um, Morgoth is taken down, to me struck struck home as being this is the terrible part of their of how they're arrayed. It does strike me as being quick and terrifying and terrible, and there's no dialogue, and there's this rapid succession of you know violent. You know, the violence of striking his feet out from under him, hurled on his face, um, and then not shaping his collar or reshaping his collar, beating his collar yes. uh, in, into, in, or beating the crown into a collar. That, that verb choice for me uh, reinforces the suddenness, violence, and terribleness of how, I, I, it just strikes me as, if they've chosen to be arrayed in the world in forms young and fair and terrible, this final episode is this is a sort of the, the terrible nature of their power when they and, and so so for me I was reading that as not at all being the elves that are involved in this. This is the Valar as they are arrayed, uh, and there's no dialogue, there's no exchange, there's no talking about terms of peace or terms of of uh, of, of uh, pardon. It's just that those very dynamic sentences, one after the other, and then beating the beating the crown into a collar. Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think that that is a very interesting choice of verb there. Of course, it it literally, presumably, refers to the the beating of 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 Smith's hammers. Um, but 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 yeah, it also certainly does evoke the beating that. <laughs> Morgoth has just gotten, and I, yeah, I agree. It's it's it is uh, a very uh, a very evocative term there. Uh, the 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 last big thing I want to talk about tonight is the Silmarils, the fate of the Silmarils, and the oath of Feanor. Before we do that, though, because there's the the one uh, sort of loose endy thing that I wanna that I wanna bring in, and I want to do it before we get on the Silmarils, because we'll probably, I assume, spend the rest of our time with that. Is just the the fact of the drowning of Beleriand, um, and particularly the um, the the one evocative point about Syrian. Um, oh, where is it? Darn it! I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm totally. Uh, Totally flailing on. Was no more. Yes. Where is that, Mike? It's the the final passage at the end of the sen- uh, the semicolon, the long paragraph on um, 
found new paths, and the valleys were upheaved, and the hills trod down. There it is. And, and Syrian, Syrian was, was no, no more. more. Okay, there it is. There it is. Okay, good, good. Um, we have been told, of course, many times how important Syrian is, and, and in particular, you you may recall, its especial importance was that Syrian is, is most beloved of Olmo, and so, of course, it's ironic uh, that, you know, it's the sea, Olmo sea rushing in, and you'd think that, well, hey, you know, this is no major loss, Olmo, you know, now Syrian is going back into the sea, and okay, all is, all is well, but remember... Remember back, as I know you all remember back fondly, to the chapter of Beleriand and its realms. And one of the things that we were saying in my one attempt to uh, uh, to sort of, uh, uh, you know, save that chapter um, from just annoying everybody, as it so often tends to do, is the way that the landscape itself is made into a character here and the way in which that the whole continent of Beleriand or subcontinent of Beleriand is described with such affection and with such personality. And in particular, the rivers, the rivers are really, they are the personality of this continent. And we get them referred to with personal pronouns and we get, you know, the verbs that are attached to them are very active. Um, you know, the, the rivers seem to have particular characters um, that is, you know, almost, almost like they have personalities. And I think in this moment, especially in that sentence, and you'll notice that this sentence has that same kind of rhetorical shape that we've talked about so much that, that Mike was just referring to earlier on, um, where th- that ending with and Syrian was no more. Because uh, this is a long sentence. For so great was the fury of those adversaries that the northern regions of the western world were rent asunder, and the sea roared in through many chasms, and there was confusion and great noise, and rivers perished or found new paths, and the valleys were upheaved, and the hills trod down, and Syrian was no more. There's sadness there. The death of Beleriand is a tragic thing. Um, And, you know, the War of Wrath is not without cost. It's not only the fact that ultimately the Silmarils are going to get lost, and when the host of the Valar return to Valinor, they're not going to be bringing the Silmarils back with them. And it's not just that so many people have died in Middle-earth through all of the stuff that Morgoth has been doing. It's that Beleriand itself dies, and Syrian was no more. Um, Those rivers, those, those, you know, those rivers with so much personality perished. And the whole land is gone. And of course you remember uh, in the two towers, Treebeard singing his song about Beleriand and remembering the days when he used to wander there. And uh, you know, you think of the, the ways in which Treebeard talks about trees, you know, nobody really cares for the trees the way that I do. And you know, there's a sense in which it's like, nobody really cares for the rivers the way that I do. Um, you know, Beleriand itself it's it's death because it has died here it's it's death as a as as collateral damage in this war is is sad is tragic and i think that you know we get that one glimpse of that tragic tone here especially in that and syrian was no more um anyway okay that was one 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 thing i wanted to say that before we before we move on but now let's let's go on We've got 40 more minutes for uh, for Mithros and Maglor, the, their oath, and the final destiny of the Silmarils. Where do you guys want to... Do you guys want to just like start by fighting about the oath and get it over with, or uh, what do you think? 
What, Dave's not going to jump in on that? That was practically an invitation. I'll jump in here. Okay, go ahead. Uh, I'll jump in. Uh, and mine's actually more of a technical question. Uh, when Midras and Maglor kill the guards, why is that not counted amongst <laughs> the kin slaying? Th- that's a great question, because it has to be. Right, I mean, I mean, unless like they happen to appoint humans to, but which seems a little unlikely, uh, to guard the Silmarils. No, I agree. They're almost certainly elves, and uh, and I, I, you know, you almost get the impression at this point that it's like with with the sons of Feanor, we've like stopped counting. You know, this is uh, this is uh, this 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 barely even. Especially, you know, the thing that I was reminded of was not even the other. Not even the other three kinslayings that is you know on the on in the in the haven of Alqu- of Alqualande in Doriath, and then finally at the mouths of Sirion at the beginning of this chapter, even more than those uh when I was reading through it this time, I was thinking of the scene uh, you know way back earlier on when Feanor first draws his sword on Fingolfin in Tyrion. And what a big deal is made of that. Oh, you drew your sword on your brother. You know, he threatened violence to another person, not only another elf, but his own brother, uh, you know, here in the Blessed Realm. And now you've got Mytheris and Maglor just like, you know, offing the guards of the Silmaril and running off with them. And it's it's like, you know, we barely even register that at this point. Um, so, I mean, I think that that's... Uh, I think that, that that's really... That that's really interesting. I, I you know I don't know, um, I don't know exactly what what we're supposed to do with that. But but you know the fact that it isn't counted that that so little so little of a deal is made of it <laughs> seems to me kind of strange. Um, anyway, um, th- does anybody else have any theories on that? Any other thoughts about that? The only thing I can think of is that they seem to say that there are two guards, and so killing only two people isn't that bad, I guess, by <laughs> comparison of the hundreds of people that they have slaughtered in the quest for the Silmarils. So that one, we're just gonna we're just gonna let that one slide. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're just gonna, you know, it's like lump that in. I mean, they've killed so many elves at this point. Like, what's two more? No, I mean, there is almost that sense of it. Like, they are they are so. Um, they're such repeat offenders on this front that I mean, seriously, like you can't really uh you can't really add to their uh to their rap sheet at this point. Um Yeah, yeah. Um Jack, go ahead. I think one power of the scene is uh for me when I first read it was um after all the stuff that's happened uh, the whole war of the wrath and everything that's happened up until now, and then to see these two elves like sneaking into the camp, to my first reaction when I read it was, you know, are you kidding me? <laughs> and, and 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 when I read it again, um, you know, all these months later, my my reaction was, are you kidding me? It's it's the same, but it, what it what it, what it did for me, uh, it was it drove home the power of the oath for me um, or for these characters. And that's when I originally started asking about the oath because it, 
for them to still be after the Silmarils, after, after all that's happened, it was just, it's, it was beyond my understanding. Yeah, yeah, no, and I think that that's um, the discussion that Magwar and Matheris have about the oath and whether or not it can be held to be valid is, is really fascinating morally, um, and to see the kind of... Uh, the kind of rationalizations here. Um, and I think, you know, the one difference in, uh, in her talk at MythCon that, you know, several of us have been, have, have referenced and, and comes up in the class notes, uh, you know, Verlin Flieger was comparing and contrasting the Silmarils and the ring of power. There are some similarities between, uh, you know, how people long to possess, uh, you know, each one of those things. And, and to some extent, it, 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 perhaps the effect that they have on, they have on people. Um, this to me is, is, is one pretty major difference. When we see this discussion between Mithros and Maglor, I think it sounds really very different from the ways in which the victims of the Ring of Power in the Lord of the Rings rationalize their desire for the ring. Um, Mithros does not to me sound much like Bor- Boromir or, or Gollum. Um, or any of the other people, Frodo on a couple of occasions, that we get, um, you know, that we see having that kind of, the, the kind of rationalization uh, process that we, that we see them undertaking. Um, but, uh, but anyway, I mean, I, I, I think, uh, 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 let's go ahead and talk about, and talk about the oath there. Um, what, what do you think? Is Maglor certainly seems to me to have it uh, a little more right than Mithros here. Um, what did you make of Mithros's argument, Laura? Well, it it didn't seem like a very good argument to me. You know, I mean, it, it, it's almost like. Um, you know, I mean, I think I personally would be finding excuses to get out of the oath, <laughs> sort of finding excuses to stick to the oath. And, you know, I, I just, just some idle speculation that is not going to be found in the text, but um, could they at this point have given up the oath? I mean, even though they swore it to Iluvatar, you know, couldn't they just have said, okay, this is enough, this is you know, this is obviously a bad thing, and not have anything bad happen to them. You know, I mean, why are they, why is Mithros so, you know, intent on, on filling the oath? I mean, he he seems like he is a pretty reasonable guy, um, of all the sons of Feanor anyway. Yeah. So, um... So yeah, I, I mean, I'm just idly speculating because I don't really know. No, but, um, that's exactly the question, and I mean, we've been looking at this in 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 recent weeks. Um, that Mithros and Maglor, there have been times when it has seemed like you know that the the oath was driving them, right? That they were victims in a sense of the oath, and I don't think we see that same thing here. Um, Mike, go ahead. I think we're. Magalor gets hung up is that he is saying that there are rules that govern how and when you can be released from an oath. And the rules say that you have to be able to stand before the person you 
made the oath too, and they then get to choose whether to release you or not. And Maglor is hung up because he says, we made this oath to Iluvatar. How are we going to get an audience before Iluvatar to release us from this oath? And he can't figure out a way to do that. And if he, you know, I think uh, that's where he gets, uh, that's, uh, he, he believes that's the only way they're going to get out of it. And since they swore to an entity that they're never going to, that is not going to present himself or itself in front of them, then uh, there's no way to, to, to get out of the oath or to have the, the entity that they swore the oath to release them. Yeah, they certainly do talk like that. I mean, I find, um, I find Mithros's question, but how shall our voices reach to Iluvatar beyond the circles of the world to be a very poignant question? Um, Jason, go ahead. Can you hear me okay? I can. Great. Uh, I think another point that may come into play here with, with Mithros, and I think that you know, what Mike said is you know, very important. Uh, you know, he, he mentions that we're call it, we called the, the everlasting darkness upon that. I'm, I'm interested in what exactly that is. But uh, beyond that, there's also the natural question of if Mithros may be also be thinking, yeah, if we say, okay, now we break the oath, what does that mean about everything that they've done up to this point? Right. You know, the, the futility of all that, you know, it wouldn't have been just been better to break the oath 500 years earlier. What's, right, right. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I think that that may be, if, although that's not explicitly in the text, that it's reasonable to assume that that may be in the, in the back of Mithros's mind as well. Yeah, yeah, but but see, I mean, even that's just a rational, a poor rationalization. I mean, to say, well, you know, if we go against the oath now, then it shows that we could have been going against the oath all along, so we better not do that. That's a crappy reason for not doing the right thing now. Just because you didn't do the right thing before doesn't mean that you're actually obligated to keep doing the wrong thing for all time. Uh, and that's, of course, in the end, one of the things that Magor seems to be saying is like, well, look, if we're screwed either way, then why don't we get screwed in the way that does less harm to other people? Um, you know, less harm shall we do in the breaking. Um, but, 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 but no, I agree. I mean, there is this, like they f are trapped by the choices that they have made pre or they feel trapped by the choices that they've made previously that if now they reverse it, it shows, you know what, actually you didn't have to kill Dior and you really didn't have to descend upon the refugees from Gondolin for crying out loud. Um, you could have broken the oath earlier. Um, just as Mithros himself chose not to pursue the oath right after Baron and Luthien got back and instead tried to make an alliance with Thingol to fight with him against Morgoth uh, in what turned out to be the Nirnaith Ar Ar Arnoidiad. So, yeah, yeah, I think... Um, but I do think that does seem to, to speak to the way in which... Um, you know, Mithra certainly seems to feel himself to be trapped. Go ahead. Well, and, I mean, if we look at the oath itself, they call on the everlasting dark if they don't keep it. And the everlasting dark is capitalized. Like, it's the opposite of the flame imperishable. Like, it is the worst thing that you could possibly have. Um, and 
I think that has to be factored in when you're looking at why they feel they can't break it. Right. But see, even there, I think that they're misunderstanding the everlasting dark. What is the opposite of the flame imperishable? The flame imperishable is 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 life and creation itself. It is being itself. It is with Iluvatar. That's why Melkor can't find it out in the void. It's not in the void. It's with Iluvatar. And Iluvatar takes the flame imperishable, that, 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 that flame which is being itself, and puts it, when he says, Ea, let the world be, he put, puts the flame imperishable within it because it is being. The everlasting dark, the void, is void it's nothing it's the opposite it's unbeing so there's only one way only one relationship that you can have with the everlasting dark that is that you go into it that you leave light and life and being yourself you can't call it upon you it's not an it it doesn't do anything it's absence it's 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 a negative it's not a positive so even there they're not only failing to understand Iluvatar, who actually, you know what, I think he hears you perfectly fine from outside the circles of the world. Um, at least the evidence does seem to suggest that. Um, nevertheless, they're, 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 they're not understanding the everlasting dark either. And Jordan, this is not just to disagree with you. I think you're right about how they're understanding it um, and how they're thinking about it. Um, but I just, I think it's, it's, Again, it's very illuminating as to where their thoughts are, that they don't really seem to be understanding either side of this equation. Mike, go ahead. Well, there's a uh, legal concept in I think, Roman law and, and ancient English common law called the doctrine of unclean hands. And it basically says that if you're asking a court in equity to grant you some remedy, but you have done wrong yourself, the court will not grant that remedy because you've done some wrong. Your hands are unclean. And I think Anway makes that statement to these last brothers and says, don't get hung up about the oath. You've already forfeited your right to to possess this thing because your hands are unclean. And I think consciously or unconsciously that that concept is there in this in this passage, especially I mean, we see hands a couple of times. We see hands when they steal the Silmarils, and the phrase is, they took counsel together how they should lay hands on the Silmarils, and then finally, of course, when they finally do, you know, hold them, they can't physically hold them. They're, they're, they're being burned by them. But I think there is a really neat parallel, and, you know, more could be made of, is, is this uh, a, uh, an example of this very, very old... Uh, tradition and principle in English common law that says, and it's, it's, it's called the doctrine of unclean hands, and it's almost spelled out in those terms in this passage, but I, I think there's a neat parallel to be made there. Yeah, yeah. No, I agree. And certainly that is, that's especially interesting in, in light of the, you know, the, what Jason was talking about, about the, the, their own awareness of their own guilt too. Um, it's like they, they, it is as if going into it, they recognize exactly what you're saying, Mike. They recognize their hands are unclean. And what's more, to choose not to pursue the Silmarils is like confessing that, um, that their hands are unclean. 
you know it's it because it because they are they basically they are convicting themselves um if they admit that it wasn't the oath that compelled them to do it but it was their own choices because they could have chosen to break the oath if they'd wanted to that's what they're showing if they now choose to break the oath um so yeah i think that that's that that's really interesting uh, it, brandon you, you and dave have been going back and forth here do you guys want a chance to uh uh to 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 air things out vocally here all right yeah um I was just making the point that really it's they've could have this is a really complex issue, but I have a feeling that it's more of the elf that makes the choice to carry out the oath in a certain way in his own interpretation through how he was brought up, it shaped his identity. Um but it's it's more of the elf carrying out the oath and his choices. He had plenty of choices to carry it out different ways. Uh, all of them did. All of the sons of Feanor did. Uh, they didn't have to carry out carry it out in such a violent way. Um, mm-hmm. I don't think. I think they could have made uh, different choices. That that's my only argument. But this is a really this. I'm really hard pressed to defend uh, this <laughs> guy. But that's my only defense I can muster at the moment. I yeah. Guess. But I've been saying that all along. Yeah, no, it's true, and it's hard because you know Mithros. Right up until this moment, I mean, I, I, I always find Mithros kind of a tragic figure, um, <clears throat> though tragic in a kind of Turin Turambar way. In one sense, in that, I mean, it certainly is his own, his own choices that help to lead to things. But I mean, uh, ever since you know, as soon as Mithros gets his arm stapled to the wall, I, 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 I always, uh, I always, I always. I always really liked him. I was always really drawn to him as a character um, when reading the Silmarillion when I was younger. And and he is clearly one of the good guys. That is, of the, you know, compared to his brothers, you know, among the sons of Feanor, he's one of the good guys. Now, you might say that's a really low standard of comparison, but still. Um, And here we see him, we see him caught. Um... And yet his own argument, his own logic, Laura, as you pointed out, is really pretty bad. Um, you know, though, though, again, I think that we can attribute it to, as I was suggesting before, we can attribute it just to kind of bewilderment. That when he says, who shall release us, he genuinely doesn't know the answer to that question. That he wishes they could be released, but really has no idea how that could happen. But again... It's the thought of their oath unfulfilled which drives them. Earlier on, we see the burden that their oath is on them. And to me, the uh, the phrase which is which is most powerful in uh, in this description in the in talking about Mithros and uh, and and Maglor here is with weariness and loathing uh, they prepare uh, to do this, um, and that's. That's we can see they are both weary of doing this, and they hate it, and yet they feel like they have to um yeah, I mean uh and Dave, I agree with you, I think uh, to me, the Maglor argument makes a lot more sense, in fact, there is something almost self sacrificial in Maglor's argument, um though even it I think is kind of misunderstanding the situation um Aonwe has told them. 
look, your oath, it's void. It's meaningless. It's gone. I mean, I mean, like you're, you have no right to the Silmarils. Let it go, people. Um, but they, but they don't, won't, can't. Um, what do you think about, uh, what do you think about the final fate of the Silmarils? We've got the one up in the sky. We've got the one in the fires at the at the at the heart of the earth, and then we've got one in the depths of the sea. Um, oh, actually, before we even get that, what do you make of the burning of the hands of the sons of Feanor? Well, this is a. I think this is interesting. What are the Silmarils, and why does light burn? <laughs> That's a good question, Jordan. Uh, can we can we answer that in uh, eighteen minutes? Do yeah. we have enough time for? That? Yeah, no problem, no problem. Because I, 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 I think uh, my philosophy is any question that has stumped both Tom Shippey and Verlin Flieger is easy to answer in ten minutes or less. Uh, Dave, go ahead. Well, I think um, any question that has stumped Tom Shippey and Verlin Flieger is certainly um, worthy of a superficial treatment by us. <laughs> certainly. Um, <laughs> in fact, it's um, almost presumptuous just for us to, to give it more than a superficial it, treatment. So, um, yeah, <laughs> I put this in the Google Doc. Um, what interests me about um, this uh, section is the fact that uh, these guys both, you know, um, what's his face, uh, Medros, <laughs> dives into a giant gaping chasm, uh, and Maglor tosses his Silmaril into the water. Um, Complain, you know, because the the jewels were, quote unquote, tormenting them, um, and I just wanted to point out that these guys were tormented before they ever laid hands on their jewels. I mean, we discussed this before that they were just just being eat, you know, eaten up inside by the fact that they had this oath, um, and so I, I, you know, I mean, like the text itself does say that the that Maglor could not bear the torment that the Silmarils were giving him, but. I wonder if we can make something of the fact that they were tormented before, and I wonder if the torment that they're feeling after they get the Silmarils is any really different from um, the torment they were feeling before. That said, I'm very, very reluctant to to just sort of dismiss out of hand uh, Verlin Flieger's complaint, and and like I mentioned that in, in in on the Facebook thing, and people were like, "Oh, I think it's this." They were sort of doing what the people in the crowd were doing, right? And I'm sure if Virlin Flieger would have done that, they would have smacked all of you down. But <laughs> right. I can't do her argument justice. So if you can, Corey, I I would love to hear it again. Well, no, I mean, no, well, I certainly can't do it in like five to ten minutes here. But um, basically, Flieger was talking in her uh, in her lecture basically about the. The the irony, the puzzle of the fact that the Silmarils seem to are associated with light, and yet they don't act like light. Um, and one of the questions she asked about the burning of the hands here, she was wondering why it seems to be inconsistent that you know we get we get Morgoth's hand being burned by the Silmarils, and we get uh, Mithras and Magor's hands being burned by the Silmarils, but it certainly doesn't seem to be consistently true that all unworthy hands that touch the Silmarils for bad with bad motivations get burned, or else Fanor's hand would have been burned way back when, and Thingol's hand would have been burned when he's holding the Silmaril. Um, so, 
you know, maybe you can say, all right, Baron and Luthien, they don't get burned because, you know, their 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 motivations are pure. In fact, that's kind of emphasized that, um, you know, we get, oh, of course, Karkaroth's belly is burned uh, by the Silmaril as well. Um, but we, we, I, I, I don't think, well, I don't know. It's tricky. Um, I would then go back, Dave, to the point that you made, which I think is a very good one, because here we have the Silmarils affecting them in a sense, merely literalizing the way that the Silmarils had been affecting them all along. And actually, I think you can say the same thing for Morgoth, that Morgoth's desire for the Silmarils is like a snapshot of his desire for the imperishable the imperishable flame to begin with and that there's um that that desire has burned him as well or at least when he has reached out his hand to take it you know when he descends into arda um and you know and is and, and says i name it unto myself you know, in the end, we see him burned, and it's it's you know it's by Arda, by his attachment to Arda, by his desire to possess Arda, that he himself is burned also. Um, and you know, I mean, again, I, I'm not trying to stretch that too far. I mean, obviously, there are there are differences there, but I think that we can see some kinds of parallels. Um, so you know, there are ways in which I think the burning of the of the 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 hands of people by Silmarils um, seems to be kind of an externalization of an internal thing to some extent. Uh, Laura, you've been polite and patient as usual here. Go ahead. Well, I just wanted to do something that I think Verlin Flieger would approve of, and that's bring it back to the text. Yeah. I just wanted to read the the sentence where Varda hallows the Sumeros. Yes, make that thank clear. you. Um, it says, And Varda hallowed the Sumeros so that thereafter no mortal flesh nor hands unclean, nor anything of evil might touch them, but it was scorched and withered. So I think we can see by this point, um, uh, Mithros and Maglor have become evil. They've become unclean. And, you know, perhaps Thingol, I mean, you can't say that Thingol was evil. He, he had a lot of pride, but he was never evil, and he was never unclean. But I think uh, Mithros and Maglor, by by using their rather weak logic to fulfill this oath that they know is evil have become evil at this point and that's why it's burning them you know it's it's not so much the light burning them or the 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 gems it's the the hallowing by varda that's causing the burning yeah yeah no i it, it it's that is what Kazius they have been they have been hallowed they have been made sacred and that seems to me to be um merely an extension of what well b- both a very natural thing for Varda to do as she is associated with light and with the light of the face of Iluvatar um <clears throat> but also a, a, a natural thing for her to do and a natural kind of either extension of or drawing attention to the significance of the Silmarils themselves. But there I am coming perilously close to, in one sentence, uh, just brushing off the whole kind of puzzle that uh, that that Verlin and Tom were pointing to, Tom and his book and Verlin and her, in her talk, um, which I don't want to do. But, um, but I do think... 
Yes, that is the moment when they are made hallowed. And so you can say that explains why Fanor's hand wasn't burned, because, you know, his he, he, he held them prior to that. And also, his hands had not been yet unclean, even if his heart was not pure, uh, <clears throat> his hands were not yet unclean, and he never did touch them um, once he had actually dirtied his hands with the blood of his kin. Um, but <clears throat> I, I don't want to get too kind of legalistic on that either. Um, yeah. Well, good. And I, you know, I think the the final connection of the Silmarils to the elements of Earth I think is is really is really sort of fit and fascinating that you get um the Silmarils kind of investing all four of the elements one of course does double duty with earth and fire and the other water and the other air um and that again kind of seems to me fit I mean even thinking of the parallel that I was, without even thinking about this, kind of accidentally making uh, between Arda itself and the Silmarils as far as Morgoth's desire uh, for domination is concerned. I think that we can see that functioning here a long time ago, way back um, in the episode, so long ago, it was the episode I just posted on my podcast, um, that is the uh, our session number eight when we were looking at the Silmarils and the creation of the Silmarils by, by Feanor. Um, we were talking about the Silmarils, why this book is called the Silmarillion, why it is that the Silmarils are at the heart um, of all things. And I think that, you know, we can see here certainly one function that they do seem to have in this book is that they are they are like the essence of what <clears throat> of what has made being and creation and Arda itself desirable and beautiful. And, you know, it is what it is. They are they are like a a a tangible representation, not only illustration but representation of subcreation itself, and that therefore you know the fact that their final homes kind of invest all of creation, all of all of all of Arda, all of the world anyway, um, with with their light and uh, you know and sort of symbolically. Um, with their being seems seems fitting it, it is like the silmarils are in a sense returning home although they came from the trees uh they seem to be in a sense even bigger than the trees themselves the trees were by comparison a kind of local phenomenon um or perhaps you could look at it in a, that is in that it was just in Valinor and not in Middle-earth as well the trees um or you could look at it in a different way not just looking backwards but looking forwards remember the comment that Maglor and Mithros make when they see Arendel's star rising and they say hey surely that's a Silmaril and they say well now its light is shared by many um now again it's like now all of Arda is going to be blessed by the Silmarils. Now, you know, water, earth, fire, and air, all of them will be blessed by the Silmarils. And actually, in a sense, that's almost like now this is 
the blessing that was the trees. Because remember, it was the trees which made the Blessed Realm the Blessed Realm. I mean, of course, no, really, it's the Valor who make the Blessed Realm the Blessed Realm. But still, I mean, think about, like, the difference between Calaquendi and Moraquendi, right? I mean, it's it's the elves who have seen the light of the trees and elves who have not seen the light of the trees. I mean, the light of the trees was a really big deal over in Valinor. And <clears throat> now, instead of having that light kept aside, now we have it spread, um, in a sense, at least symbolically, um, spread through all of Arda. And that seems that seems right. That seems good. The loss of the Silmarils is a kind of tragedy. Um but you know, I, I'm not sure that this is uh that this is the best the best case. Uh that this isn't the best case scenario. Um Okay, well there are a bunch of things that we could say or no yeah Matt go ahead. You wanted a quotation you wanted to end with I think? Yes, um, this is a quotation from the Lord of the Rings, uh, the Mirror of Galadriel chapter, and she's speaking with Frodo, and I think this uh, short passage really sums up the whole melancholy existence of the elves and um, the experiences they went through in the Silmarillion. Uh, She says, The love of the elves for their land and their works is deeper than the deeps of the sea, and their regret is undying, and cannot ever wholly be assuaged. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. No, exactly. That's their regret is undying, and there is that element in the loss of the Silmarils. There is that element too. And I mean, I don't, I don't want to make it sound in the end like uh, you know, it's like oh, and you know, the 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 Silmaril being lost in the depths of the sea, and one being lost in the earth. That that's uh, that's all a really good thing, um, but. Uh, yeah, yeah, no, exactly. I think that that's that is what what elvenness is like. And on the subject of elves lingering in Middle Earth into the Third Age, uh, Jason, go ahead. Yeah, I've been egged on in the chat to ask this question, but I really am interested in this. Um, way back when we talk about the first summons of the elves to Valinor. Um, I think it was Jack posted a YouTube video of an interview with Tolkien where he said that what the Valar had done there was a primary error in uh, summoning the elves. And we had talked a lot about that in the seminar about whether this was the right thing for them to do. And um, if we go with that interpretation that it was a mistake for them to take the elves out of Middle-earth and take them to Valinor, what's going on here? I mean, they're, they're basically doubling down on that decision. You might think that this would be the point for them, for them to say, okay, well, Morgoth's done, done now. The, it was wrong for us to take the elves out in the first place. Now's the opportunity for them to heal Middle-earth. But instead they say, okay, all you guys pull up stakes and come back to Valinor. And, of course, we see Middle-earth in a big mess uh, in the, the Second uh, Age and Third Age in large part as a result of that. So how are we supposed to think about this summons to Valinor uh, of the elves? Yeah, I mean, that, 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 is a, that is a really good question. And the thing is, one of the things that we see, and you know, back to the quotation that Matt just read from Goadriel, what we see of the elves from this point onward is the fact that they, they belong in the West. That this is not now just the Valar saying, should we invite them or should we leave them? You know, they could stay there, they could come here. Ah, let's have them come here. 
it's like now there's not really a choice. Now the elves have to go back. And I'm not sure this is this is my stab uh, at an answer to that question. I kind of think that once that choice was made, that this is this is in a sense, as you say, doubling down. But I'm not sure that this isn't the natural consequence of that decision once having been made. Um, Jason, go ahead. I know that Tolkien obviously has to get to a point where the elves are gone from Middle Earth. I mean, that's kind of the, the whole mythology is, is mandates that that happen at some point. I'm, I'm just not sure whether we're, we're given a sort of adequate explanation of, of why it happens in, in the way that it does. I mean, you, you think there might be some sort of explanation that, well, yeah, like you're saying, well, maybe now. You know, we've crossed that bridge and we have to keep going, so we're taking them all out now. But there's there's never any sort of nod to that idea. It just says, okay, they're summoning them and here we go. Yeah, yeah. Or or even thinking about again, I'm just like the the quote that Matt read is still just keeps going through my mind. That that issue of regret. Um, well, one thing to regret is that they didn't spend more time in Middle Earth when they had the chance. If we do accept. Uh, as a sort of a fundamental premise, which doesn't seem ever to be explained, as you say, Jason, um, uh, that the elves over time can't stay in Middle Earth, and that the elves are going to leave, and the elves are going to the elves who stay are going to fade. If we accept as a given that that is a trend in history, then it makes that initial, that error of the Valar at first the more weighty and the more tragic because the first age, the long first age from the beginning of the, you know, from from whenever the elves woke up and we don't know exactly how much time has passed exactly, um, from the moment the elves woke up until now, until the War of Wrath, this was their window, you know, this was the this was the period of time that they that they could have been blessing all of Middle Earth, and then, if it is indeed true that this uh, you know fading and withdrawal of the elves was inevitable, um, you know how much different might it have looked if uh, um, had the elves not been withdrawn when they had the chance at the first time. Now again, this is speculation. Who knows? I don't know. Um, uh, if that exactly is what's going on, if we are supposed to understand that exactly, but but it, it, I think you know as an op- as as something that they regret that as the Valar might regret as a consequence of their decision, um, but I don't think necessarily at the time when they invite when the valar invite the elves over the first time i think that we do get especially in olmo's arguments we do get good cause from within the text to question even not just in tolkien's interview later on but from the text we do get good cause to question are the valar doing the right thing they could have gone one way they've chosen to go this other way you know there might be bad consequences to this well in in this moment, I don't think we get those same cues. I don't think that here, this is in that same sense doubling down. That is that they, that they are, they could have gone either way, you know. And they've decided, ah, well, you know, let's just keep let's just keep inviting the elves. 
now there is a sense of inevitability to it. Now there's a sense in which it really is the only thing that can happen. Um, and that staying is questionable. And Galadriel's choice to stay is questionable. And her choice, finally, to go back um, at the end of The Lord of the Rings is a really good thing for her. Um, but uh, anyway, so I mean, I think, I think that that's, uh, that's, that's the best I got about that. But I mean, it is all very speculative because it's all based upon that fundamental question or that fundamental premise, Jason, as you said, about the, about the mythology of the fading of the elves. And it's impossible really to speculate on something which begins with the statement, um, you know, what if elves would, you know, were not going to fade or, you know, what if things were different and the elves didn't have to leave? Um, so yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that's, uh, yeah, obviously it's not something we can really do with any confidence, but it certainly is interesting. Certainly is interesting to think about. Okay. Well, with that, speculation we are uh we have come to the end of our time here so um thus ends thus ends the quenta silmarillion um we should I, we might as well let us end with reading it here here ends I think, go, go ahead you're in it. i i think we need one more week on this chapter yeah, yeah, okay. We'll have one more week to talk about this last paragraph. Here ends the Silmarillion. If it has passed from the high and the beautiful to darkness and ruin, that was of old the fate of Arda Mard. And if any change shall come and the marring be amended, Manwe and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it, and it is not declared in the dooms of Mandos. And, you know, I think that that's... Actually, you know, Jason, that kind of sounds like an answer to the question, doesn't it? And if any change shall come and the marring be amended, you know, Manway and Varda may know, but they have not revealed it. You know, their own choice, the Valar's own choice was part of the marring, um, is involved in the marring. And now it's, uh, you know, it can't, it hasn't yet anyway been amended. Um, yeah, maybe, maybe. Anyway, um uh well well good now although we said this is you know thus ends the silmarillion this was the body of the silmarillion but it is not the end of this book we still have the two more things which christopher tolkien put in this volume and by golly we're going to talk about them uh the akalabeth and of the rings of power in the third age um so we're going to do two weeks i hope two weeks on the akalabeth um so uh so yeah read the akalabeth for next time um and uh and uh that'll be good. Um and yet no, I am so confident that we're gonna get through this in two weeks. I'm I, I, I really believe in this, despite Jordan and Dave. I think it's really gonna happen. Um but anyway, thanks everybody. Thanks everybody for joining us on Middle Earth Network Radio. And uh we look forward well, okay, I was gonna say we look forward to the downfall of Numenor, but that seems mean spirited. But anyway, we look we look forward to discussing the downfall of New of Numenor next week. Uh, thanks, everybody, and good night. And that's a wrap for this episode. If you're interested in learning more about Tolkien, be sure and check out MythGuard.org, where you can learn what you love. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed. <laughs>